Welcome, this is a paradigm shift. End to country, energy policy in Queensland. We live more comfortably than any previous generation, basically because we have access to huge amounts of energy. This enables us to accomplish with ease tasks that once required physical labour, like washing clothes, building roads or kneading dough to make bread. It also enables us to do things that were previously impossible, control temperature and humidity inside our buildings, process vast amounts of data, transfer information around the world at the press of a key, travel long distances and import bulk quantities of food. We now face two fundamental challenges to our lifestyle, peak oil and climate change. The good news is that renewable energy resources are enormous, far greater than any conceivable future level of human need. The amount of solar energy hitting Australia alone in one summer day is about half the global total annual energy use for all purposes. More and more people appreciate the obvious truth. For our civilization to have a secure future, we must manage the greatest energy transition since the Industrial Revolution saw coal replacing wood. We have to move away from fossil fuels and power our society from renewables. Thus spoke uh, Emeritus Professor Ian Lowe. Today we have two people who have come to talk about this issue. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, uh, Sean Murray from Friends of the Earth and also Lock the Gate. Trevor Beryl, a sustainable energy systems engineer and a former Friends of the Earth member and member of a range of organisations like Solar Energy Society and uh, the Alternative Technology Association. Let's start off with the question, what's wrong with the energy system as it currently exists? Well, you'd have to say that looking at it globally, both from an environmental and a social perspective, it's pretty broken at the moment so whilst it's uh continues to provide uh the for the energy needs of the the rich world it's doing that at huge environmental cost and cost to future generations and and to the livelihoods of people in at risk from climate change and vulnerable to climate change so yeah so it, it, i would say i would argue that it's quite broken at the moment and i just add a yeah. comment there look it's it's much a bigger problem than just climate change the fossil fuels that we're currently heavily dependent on globally still uh, are polluting the planet and affecting many many systems planetary based systems um, one of them for example is the nitrogen system where we produce nitrogen fertilizers from gas uh, and that nitrogen use now is heavily polluting rivers streams uh, even oceans if you look at places like the gulf of mexico for example so the effects of fossil fuels are far greater than just the issue of climate change while that is a massive problem in itself and threatens humanity it's it's a combination of a range of impacts from fossil fuels they're simply polluting fuels from the very start of using them to the very finish and that's the disposal of them Uh, at the end of the day all fossil fuels end up as waste heat in the atmosphere and even that waste heat burden this is outside of the effects of greenhouse gas emissions just simply that waste heat is now becoming a burden on the total planetary system. If that's the case, why do we still have fossil fuels as our major energy source? Well, the reasons are that uh, the the uh, it's a very convenient fuel to use and we've built up a whole structure around it. The key issue is that it's very energy dense, so it's allowed us to produce energy in, um, in large amounts 
in small areas. And in, in an engine is a, a good example. You can get a lot of energy out of a car engine to do a lot of physical work for us. And it's a transportable fuel as well, so it's given us huge flexibility. But it's now coming at a huge cost, uh, and those costs aren't properly fl- reflected in the economic system. Um, it really fails to account for those costs, and political vested interests in the energy sector continually uh, suppress that uh, a change because they don't want those figures out there in the public. They don't want the public seeing that they're heavily subsidising, for example, this industry. Okay, so the fossil fuels, they pollute. They are very bad, not just from the point of view of greenhouse gases, but as Trevor's just outlined, they they affect a whole lot of other parts of the environment. Now, is, is there anything about the extraction of these fossil fuels that we should look at seriously? Uh, like, there seems to be now uh, a debate going on between farmers on one hand and miners on the others and the debate is about land rights essentially in that debate must reside part of the reason why we have vested interest groups being able to make large profits and to actually extract these fossil fuels yeah that's right i mean i guess what we're seeing is the the huge political muscle of the fossil fuel industry being very effectively wielded to control and dictate government policy at the expense of the entire community and as as well specific sectors of our society like the agricultural sector but also other other export industries and then down to a local level um i think yeah the effects the local localized effects of as uh, trevor was alluding to before of the whole fossil fuel chain from from the the extraction the the pollution of you know living next to a coal mine or um, having your water polluted by um, the coal seam gas industry to uh, living along a, a, a transit corridor, a rail corridor, where the, the coal dust is polluting the local environment, to loading it onto the port, to you know shipping across to another country, and then yeah, once again the the pollution and impact upon upon communities there. So I think we're seeing yeah uh, the, the the might of the fossil fuel industry being wielded at the expense of. Um, a whole range of communities so yeah not just the, the the farming not just farmers but yeah a whole range of people people living along railway lines is another example where they're being subjected now to coal dust but uh, just a, a, another direction a little bit just in terms of extraction of of uh, fossil fuels we're now shifting into more and more difficult places to extract fossil fuels in the 1950s and the 1930s the stuff just the oil in particular just bubbled out of the ground we didn't have to do much to get it out we're now having to expend more and more and more energy in order to not just get the stuff out of the ground and turn it into a useful fuel uh, but then protect ourselves all the way down the line after that so on the cars now we have catalytic inverters we put a lot of it, of effort into improving the the burning of the fuel so that's all comes at cost technology and energy inputs if we go through to the final uh, now looking at how we dispose of the waste products you know with carbon capture and storage which is uh, really just a pipe dream um, that's going to come at an enormous energy cost itself you know if you have to capture the carbon dioxide out of the fossil fuel power stations it cuts their energy production output by about a quarter to a third so suddenly you're getting less energy useful energy out of the plant so that 
is now a burden that is increasing on the whole fossil fuel industry and it affects what we call the energy economics, not the dollar value, um, but the actual balance between how much you put in, how much effort you put in to how much you get out of the energy source. And eventually you get to a point where it's not worth investing energy into extracting fossil fuels in order to get some energy out of it. And that ratio is somewhere probably around 7 to 10. So we need to be looking at uh, technologies that give us 10 times more energy out of them or greater value greater than that than the energy that we put into them uh, in order to, to utilise them. And fossil fuels are starting to drop below that value of 10 globally. Historically, they've been falling all the time. We have an economic system that enables those fossil fuels, particularly in Queensland, to be extracted and taken to the seaboard and shipped overseas uh, and backing that up as a political system which is so entrenched with the economic order that they would do the unthinkable in terms of the last 150 years where they managed to privatise the publicly owned rail system which was earning a lot of money from taking essentially dirt from the west to the seaboard, earning a lot of money from that and they were subsidising the suburban rail system, they were subsidising rail generally for cartage of of wheat, sorghum, other uh, farm products. That system that is geared up to producing fossil fuel exports, that's pretty hard to, to challenge you got any thoughts on that absolutely that's um that shows a fundamental dysfunctional relationship between the physical processes and resource use that is the efficiency at which we use resources as opposed to the efficiency which we use capital and that dysfunctional relationship between economics and physics basically is is one of the core things that we're, we're having to deal with the economic system never reflects fully the environmental and social cost of the coal and the oil and the vested interests um, constantly try to ensure that those figures aren't available and aren't uh, presented to the public because the public would probably be outraged if they had the, the full figures in front of them. So we've got this dysfunctional economic system and we see constantly conflict Now, it started back in the 70s with the Limits to Growth report, which challenged the whole concept of of limits to physical resource use on the face of the planet. Uh, And that was dismissed by economists, not by physical scientists. We had a big study in Australia uh, a few years back, about 2000 by CSIRO, raising the same sort of issues that the, the Limits to Growth report in the 70s did, because the CSIRO people looked at the physical flows of energy and resources through the Australian economy and looked at what were the limitations to that and some of them are technological some of them are environmental some of them are social but they were again heavily criticized by economists so there's this dysfunctional relationship which we have to address have you got something to say about that sean uh yeah economists are a funny breed um especially the um the neoconservative or uh yeah, I guess the main, mainstream economics that adheres to some uh, fundamental belief that we can continue to grow limitlessly is an interesting notion to examine and to challenge. And, and by and large, it's in mainstream discourse that it goes unchallenged and we set our political aspirations and measure our political uh, success of parties by their ability to continue to grow the economy without stopping to examine at what expense that's coming and uh and what happens uh when that system breaks 
to underline that point that you're making now, last year Trevor and I attended the Australian Institute. Uh, they hosted a forum in Brisbane. You might have been there too, Sean, but, and it was talking about mining and the two-speed economy. It was well attended. The, the panel comprised of representatives from manufacturing, tourism, farming industries. One of the farmers from Felton was there that Trevor's had dealings with, and he pointed out that the prices of his crops, that sorghum mainly, uh, was set in Chicago, of all places. And But because of the foreign exchange rate of the Australian dollar, the prices at the farm gate were halved. Overnight, his enterprise of farming sorghum really unviable. Now, the economist present, he was very critical of mining and he was critical of the effects on the economy. However, he kept saying that he had no problem with capitalism or the ownership of Australia's natural resources uh, by big companies like Rio Tinto and BHP. So, on the one hand, we had a forum where there was a criticism, but then the criticism, when it came down to it, was, was only at the surface. It didn't look to, well, what was producing, first of all, the this farmer's uh, livelihood just falls over because of the Australian dollar and then why is it that uh, big companies like Rio Tinto and BHP have such a big control over the use of the land and never once was it even mentioned that the land is actually owned by First Nations people so that wasn't even a consideration so they they didn't get into the, any of those more fundamental questions. Now, you've been involved in, in Lock the Gate. Could you sort of walk us through some of the things that Lock the da- Gate has been trying to do to stop this juggernaut? Yeah, sure. So Lock the Gate has been, um, I would say, very successful at stopping the progress, if you can call it that, of the coal seam gas industry and and coal mining to an extent as well, um, particularly in, <coughs> excuse me, in New South Wales. Um, and now we're, we're setting our sights again on Queensland. But but basically, Lock the Gate, um, which started started in Queensland in in Tara as a response to the coal seam gas industry, started as, as a, just a, a tactic to lock the gate and not let mining companies onto people's land, even to uh, to attempt to negotiate access agreements and all that sort of stuff. So they simply said, no, we're not going to negotiate. We don't want the indus- your industry here. You're not welcome. Go away. And uh, and when it came to push came to shove, um, we're prepared to blockade and and stop and slow down the progress of of the CSG of the coal seam gas companies bringing uh, 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 drill rigs onto people's properties and and so holding up the whole process all the way and that's that's had uh, there's been basically pockets of of resistance in in Queensland amongst a backdrop of a massive push by this industry and basically lock the gate was a little bit slow in getting started um, if we'd been been earlier at it we could have could have locked up a lot more land but in New South Wales it's been a different story where there's been there's been much larger areas like the, in the northern rivers we've seen massive community mobilization and and basically a strategy of going of communities going door to door to build up consensus in in whole whole communities and whole regions that where it's like 90 plus percent in some cases 97 98 percent of people in those regions don't want the the coal seam gas or coal industries in their regions so it becomes not just about individual property rights but about the the rights of communities to have self-determination and to to say no to uh, an invasive extractive industry coming into their communities and destroying the natural environments for 
basically for a s- simple profit motive. So, and in New South Wales, it's uh, starting to be highly successful. So we're seeing companies like Metgasco, they were blockaded. In, in some instances, 300 people turning out to blockade a drill rig and they couldn't, they couldn't get in and they had to get the police and eventually they got got onto someone's land and then they, they did their drilling and then they couldn't get out because they were blockaded. So they just the economics of their whole operation was just totally eroded because they have zero social licence in these areas. So, sorry, this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but basically Lock the Gate has been successful in at a grassroots level of helping to mobilise people against the industries. And as a result, we've seen companies fall over and withdraw a number of companies. You're talking there about coal seam gas, and that's one part of the fossil fuels system. Mm. Now, a week ago, I drove through Singleton, Maitland, up through the Hunter Valley, and on at least on a superficial level, what I saw was, of course, huge coal mining operations, huge stacks spewing gases into the air, incredibly large trains. Like I counted, there was one train that had four diesel engines and was carting 119 containers of coal Mm. loaded to the brim. And now on that score, isn't the battle lost? Yeah, that's right. Well, and that that's a battle that we're fighting now. But uh, unfortunately, the, the movement against the, the coal industry, our key objective at the moment, if you like, is to halt the expansion of the industry. We're not at the point where we're beating them back. We're just trying to contain them and contain the damage that they, they're doing. So, um, yeah, we in a sense, we, we have lost. And it's it's an issue for, for Australia and it's an issue of... of on a global scale because the increased emissions if all the forecast coal projects were to proceed in australia it would be the single uh, or sorry the second largest source of new greenhouse gas emissions in the world second only to the expansion of of coal mining in western western china in the next decade and that would be basically an enough greenhouse gases to push push us over global tipping point so there's there's um large philanthropic organizations in the u.s that are looking to australia and saying geez this is and and in europe that they're looking to australia and saying the, the coal industry in australia is an issue of global proportions that we need to do something about have you got something to add there trevor uh, yeah look i agree totally with what sean's just said uh and turning that around is going to take a a massive effort because the political interests are, are so strong. And just to give an example, John Howard's policy, energy policy, was basically written by fossil fuel lobbyists. And that was because a lot of people from within government were taken, were enticed out of high position policy positions within government across to the to the big polluting sectors of coal and, and, and cement and so on. And they then would become lobbyists back to the government and they would be lobbying people who were their former junior staff members uh, and they would basically be telling them what to write as the energy policy. Now, we probably haven't seen that as great an extent under Labor, but certainly it would have, it's been happening still and that's reflected in the very weak position that Labor has taken on the issue of climate change. Okay, we're back. Um, This is the paradigm shift. We're talking about energy. Uh, Now, Trevor has told us that he wants to have a talk about some of the subsidies given to the fossil fuel lobby. 
Okay, I'll just start off by explaining what I mean by subsidies. I did some work for the Felton people last year to review energy policy in Queensland and reviewed all of the state government's um, budget papers for five years and identified the expenditure from government that goes to the fossil fuel industry to support the development of it. So that's what I'm classifying as subsidies. I want listeners just to note that that paper is available on the Workers' Bush Telegraph. That's workersbushtelegraph.com.au and it's called Clean Energy Pathways, a review of energy policy in Queensland with a regional case study of the impacts on the Felton Valley. So when you look at the numbers from the state government, they were basically providing about $1.4 billion per year under Labor over five years. And it looks as though the current LNP government has just spent about 0.9 of a billion dollars. So they've cut it back a bit because they've realised there's a bit of over-expenditure on some of the uh, the port development in northern Queensland as coal uh, demand has reduced. So they've cut that back a little bit. Um, on top of that $1.4 billion per year that taxpayers fund. Uh, there's federal government subsidies to the fossil fuel industry of $10 billion per year. That's a, a, a minimum estimate, not a maximum estimate. And on top of that, in Queensland, if you add what we call the external costs, the pollution and social costs of coal-fired electricity, my estimates are, based on United States research, uh, is that it would equate to about $6 billion per year. So when you add all those numbers up, you get about $7.4 billion of costs from the fossil fuel industry to the taxpayer in Australia, in Queensland. And if you divide that by the number of homes in Queensland, it comes out at about $5,000 per home per year. So if you think about that amount of money and what every home could do if they had the choice of spending that on clean energy options, we would transform the energy system very rapidly because we'd be spending, instead of $5,000 per home per year on polluting industries, we would redirect it towards clean energy industries. And that's a massive turnaround. That would cause a massive turnaround very rapidly. Can you explain where is that money that is being spent to subsidise the use of coal-fired electricity in a home? Where is that going? I'll give you an example. This is straight out of Queensland budget figures. Port, road and rail infrastructure. In some years there was $800 million alone spent on port development. Exploration, development and data acquisition. Mining inspectorate, mine rehabilitation, carbon capture and sequestration research and development, fuel subsidies, uh, fuel subsidy inquiry, uh, subsidies to gas hot, hot water systems, for example, electric power system upgrades in order to support the development of coal mines, uh, sustainable resource communities funding initiatives. So this is money going back from uh, coal royalties to local communities to try to support their development in in certain coal mining areas. Agforce landholder support for coal seam gas contracts. So this was the government giving landowners some money in order to address the complex issues they are facing legally with the coal seam gas people, help them get good contracts in place. Collingwood Park mine subsidence. So old mines around Ipswich, for example, subsiding, causing problems. The list goes on and on. Uh, and that's why we you can find these numbers very clearly in state government figures. So essentially what happened was that public monies were spent on road, rail and ports to support this fossil fuel industry. Then, having poured all that money into the infrastructure, they then sold it to the very companies that were getting the profit from the fossil fuel. 
So they privatised the ports. They privatised the rail. So they handed it all over to them. So where does that leave us now? Well, it, it leaves us with the belief that that fundamental economic belief that uh, a competing system will somehow reduce costs but ports are actually natural monopolies so how do you then control what price the port owner decides to charge for shipping out the coal so you've got all these conflicting objectives of the economic system one is to produce supposed uh, uh competition in order to bring prices down but then you've got all these aspects which are natural monopolies so it's a real mishmash of policy development uh, which is not producing good outcomes for australia or globally the national party in queensland uh, used to support farmers um, but with the onset of the bjorki peterson regime they made queensland into a quarry and essentially the economy moved from that of being an agricultural economy when i was a boy to being uh, a mining economy and they built infrastructure to take dirt from the west to the the seashore and big mining companies made a heap of money out of that public monies were spent to actually assist them in that what can be done when you have uh, a farmer converts uh, Queensland into a quarry in order that Queensland would join this big uh, multinational club. What can you do when you're forming alliances with farmers who are entrenched politically with the National Party? So you're, you know, Sean, you're, you're from a, a Friends of the Earth, people that uh, J.B. Elke Peterson used to call Friends of the Dirt. You're out there trying to form alliances with farmers. How, how do you go about doing that when the political operation behind them has always been that of supporting big business? It's an interesting challenge and it's something that is relatively new for me but speaking about uh, Lock the Gate as an organisation I'd say that farmers are by and large pretty pragmatic types so when they see that the reality is that, that, that their historical political allies in, in the National Party um, in some cases are just deserting them or you know it's falling on deaf ears or they just serve up platitudes about um, agriculture and, and mining being able to coexist and then they see that their the only real support is coming from groups like Lock the Gate, urban uh, greenies like myself <laughs> I don't think that's a problem for them. And that's been the, the strength and um, the dynamic power of, of our campaign and of, of our movement is that we have ignite, uh, united uh, people from across the political spectrum that just have a, a common interest in protecting the country and protecting agricultural land from this invasive or these invasive industries. So I've oversimplified the political landscape that means it means that the National Party or that section of it that's part of the LNP government they are playing uh, you know a two-card trick here they're trying not to antagonize the farmers mm. too much they're playing along with the mining companies to some extent but they don't want to alienate their base so they're they're pretending to be in there um trying to look after farming land and you know traditional agricultural economy yeah, one of the strategies they've got in is to take the money that is partly royalty money from the coal mining and send it back to the region so royalties to regions and there's about i think off the top of my head it was 500 million allocated in the last budget um that the LNP just put out. So it's a big chunk. It's effectively a subsidy back to those regions to help them develop. 
but it's also to keep them quiet and make them happy. So it's a buyout mechanism. Even with the coal seam gas industry, we've seen the price that they're prepared to pay the farmers for the bores, the gas holes, gone up substantially from very low values. Uh, so, you know, making, making it more economically attractive for farmers to have coal seam gas bores on their land is one strategy. You hear the farmers talking about environmental impact statements and how it affects their business, the need to actually do that. What's at play there? Like, I guess from what I've seen, I don't know if this directly answers your question, but the environmental impact statement has become more and more farcical as time has gone on because they're not number one then then they're not um, truly assessing the long-term impacts of what they're doing in, in a lot of cases they have no idea about the uh, impacts on the, the water table there's whole things you know whole aspects that they don't even assess it's become a bit of a rubber stamp that, and they just tick the box and then they throw it in a drawer and it doesn't get looked at again. I think it's a, it's a criticism that can be drawn at government over time. Uh, there was the uh, you know the the, bo- the triple bottom line approach came in in the late 90s into government processes, which was economic, social, and environmental aspects all had to be looked at. And supposedly there was going to be a balance there. Well, what we've seen, of course, is that the balance is invariably towards the economic outcomes and far less concern about the environmental outcomes uh, and that's often because environmental outcomes are very hard to quantify over time because environmental problems sneak up on you they don't just don't hit you with a sledgehammer um, ecosystems very slowly degrade and reach tripping points where they then collapse but that slow process of degradation is where it's very difficult to um, to cost for example into the economic equation. The other issue, though, is that the uh, people that work as environmental consultants will openly tell you that the environmental impact assessment process is fundamentally flawed because they're not acting as um, private... uh, They're not acting as independent... um, uh, assessors they're basically being told by the company to do an environmental impact it's not like an independent company comes in and does it on behalf of government by analyzing what the the company's proposing the company pays the environmental specialists to come in well the companies will tell you they get told to say certain things in those reports or delete certain sections of reports Uh, and even within government at the very top of government um, the good scientists will get told to delete certain things out of the reports because it can't go before the government it's going to upset certain vested interests so there's fundamental flaws in that whole environmental assessment process okay we've been looking at the miserable side of all this (laughs) it's time we've got on the upbeat okay ian lowe said that um The good news is that renewable energy resources are enormous, far greater than any conceivable future level of human need, the amount of solar energy, etc. Now, what are the alternatives and how can they be geared into a, a, you know, 21st century Australia? Look, we've seen a massive um, development of a whole range of renewable energy technologies in the last 30 years, uh, 40 years actually, beginning in the 70s. Uh, and the the big picture ones for Australia are a combination of uh, wind energy, what we call solar thermal plant or concentrating systems uh, that concentrate sunlight, produce steam for steam turbines, uh, 
biomass plant uh, where we can use waste products from the agricultural industry, solar photovoltaics, which are the solar panels that people are putting on their homes, solar water heaters, because uh, about 40% of all end-use energy in Australia, that's what you want energy for, the, at the end point in your home, about 40% of that is just heat, and solar water heaters do that very effectively. So we've got a whole range, a plethora of technologies, uh, and we can couple them with the energy efficiency technologies that we've developed as well, which greatly reduce the demand for energy and are often the most cost-effective thing to do up front. So there's no shortage of, of technologies. The issue revolves around getting policies in place that support the development of these technologies in a very strategic way. And if you look at co- countries like Germany, um, Portugal, a whole range of European countries, they have these plans in place, although they're currently being dramatically impacted on by their turmoil economic turmoil but certainly those plans are in place to shift their economies away from fossil fuels and nuclear to renewables the the modeling of complex energy systems like the electricity system in australia in the united states throughout europe has now has been done it shows that you can couple diverse forms of renewable energy into an electrical system even with the degree of variability of wind and solar systems that occurs through natural variations and you can produce a reliable energy system one which operates within the reliability um, criteria that are currently used by government uh, to uh, to um, frame the, the operation of our electricity system for example so that work's been done in Australia now uh, and the economics of it have been done as well and it does it shows that it's not going to cost us the earth uh, it will add a little bit up front uh, but that cost comes down over time as the technologies are ramped up in scale as well and the beauty of all the renewable energy technologies is that they are very easily mass produced uh, which brings down costs very rapidly uh, and we've seen that with photovoltaic panels for example with the with the uh, development of the industry in china uh, there's now an oversupply of photovoltaic power uh, Uh, manufacturers around the world uh, and the price plummeted so that if you generate electricity on your home now you can do it cheaper than what uh, the local retailers can supply you with electricity a couple of years ago the trades and labor council hosted a forum and they invited uh, ian lowe uh, jack mundy who was the originator of the green bands in new south wales and uh, another person i've forgotten his name to talk about what sort of brave new world can be be had uh, you know an alternative to fossil fuels and someone in the audience stood up and asked the panel a simple question can this brave new world be introduced under capitalism <laughs> what do you reckon well i i think it's going to be difficult because the capitalist model is based on competition bringing prices down and what we are facing globally in terms of in, in big picture environmental pressures which translate also into social and political pressures um, require a massive cooperation at an international level that we've never seen before and that goes right down to a regional level Um, 
at a regional level, and let's go back to the local communities on the Darling Downs, I mean, they're now starting to investigate community-owned renewable energy systems that are located on the poorer quality soils on the farms where they would currently graze or do nothing much or grazing may still be compatible with the renewable energy system. So you get both food production, which is energy for people, as well as electrical energy, heat energy, the other forms of energy that we need. So that's a model that's now starting to evolve. We've now got a couple of community-owned wind farms in Australia, for example. If you go to Denmark, about 70% of wind farms in Denmark are community-owned because they have a historical tradition of that. We had a historical tradition of community-owned cooperatives in the farming industry here, and we got rid of it all and the farmers are probably lamenting that now, but that sort of model is viable uh, and it's very successful when it's done well.